taking cancel culture to a new level instead of just canceling people for stupid things they're trying to literally cancel culture this is the second part of the discussion of the great gatsby through critical theories in this episode of common furious we'll read between the lines of gatsby through critical race theory and going from there talk about whether we should still read the great gatsby and the recent legislative and culture war about crt so let's jump right in First, given how this is lacking in the current media feud about CRT, I'll give a definition of critical race theory. Critical race theory, or CRT, is a theoretical and interpretive mode that examines the appearance of race and racism across dominant cultural modes of expression. CRT scholars attempt to understand how victims of systemic racism are affected by cultural perceptions of race and how they are able to represent themselves to counter prejudice. CRT scholars are interested in recognizing racism as a quotidian component of American life. In doing so, they attempt to confront the beliefs and practices that enable racism to persist. Adopting a CRT approach to literature or other modes of cultural expression includes much more than simply identifying race, racism, and racialized characters in fictional works. Rather, it emphasizes the importance of examining and attempting to understand the sociocultural forces that shape how we and others perceive, experience, and respond to racism. These scholars treat literature and other cultural works as evidence of American culture's collective values and beliefs. In doing so, they trace racism as a dually theoretical and historical experience that affects all members of a community regardless of their racial affiliations or identifications. Scholars also examine white privilege and notions of whiteness throughout history to better understand how American culture conceptualizes race or, and this is important, the seeming absence of race. Now, reading The Great Gatsby through critical race theory, it's important to note that this is the Roaring Twenties and the heyday of the Harlem Renaissance. So, but the book also embodies a contradiction between white privilege and the emerging diversity. And this is manifested through a dichotomy between portraying whiteness as pure and civilized and darkness as wild and primitive. And this is exemplified by Nick's belonging to whiteness and his description of the melting pot, New York City. Nick's perspective is crucial to understanding race in The Great Gatsby because he tells the story through a kind of nostalgia of the white world and expresses this in the coded language of white privilege. Of course, The Great Gatsby is not a commentary on America's racial identity, and there is the seeming absence of race, um, as I've said in the definition. But the novel is actually very quick to assert racial undertones. It establishes white privilege as a valuable and inherent identity that's worthy of preservation and honoring. We can see this through the Buchanans, who are the prototype couple of wealth and prestige. On one hand, we have Tom, who is the embodiment of masculinity and status. He stated his concern about the white race, uh, and this is a direct quote, being utterly submerged by the rise of the colored empires. So he has this fear of racial integration, and he believed it to be a threat to his entitlement. As a representation of the white upper class, Tom's comments really post people of color as this evil emerging power that might, might just topple his vision of the high white civilization. And on the other hand, we have Daisy, the other Buchanan, who is this lovely wife in a gilded cage. She offers us a subtler and more feminine take on the white privilege by expressing the nostalgia of her beautiful, quote-unquote, white girlhood. So in Daisy's language, the color white is a symbol of youth and beauty, 
uh, which are a woman's most prized qualities according to the conventional values of their time. So by associating the color white with a state of precious innocence, she is implying a worship of whiteness above the dirty muddles of society, and society was at the time becoming increasingly diverse. So on one hand, we have the introduction of whiteness as this institution of entitlement and order in the very first chapter. But then on the other hand, in stark contrast, the novel portrays darkness or blackness as uncontrolled, mysterious, and even shady. This is also where Nick's narration comes into play with his skepticism towards rich black people and his anti-Semitic sentiment. So in Nick and Gatsby's trip to New York City, Nick spotted a limo driven by a white chauffeur in which sat three modish black people and quote-unquote laughed aloud as they stared back in quote-unquote halty rivalry. And again, this is in the spirit of the Harlem Renaissance, these black people attained wealth and cultural pride like never before, and so they can afford the expensive ride and even reverse racial norm by hiring a white driver. But then Nick's laughter and detection of rivalry facing black people's success, this is his resistance of racial diversity. I do think there is some degree of appreciation going on there, but he says it in an attitude as if like seeing some kind of crazy creature in the zoo. And adding on that, this whole scene is paired with the context of his suspicion of Gatsby's fraud. So throughout the trip, Gatsby talks about his wealth and success, and Nick sees it with skepticism and even scorn. So this sense of illegitimacy, um, I mean, right after Nick saw the three black people in the car, he was like, wow, this is crazy. Maybe even Gatsby can happen. So this sense of undeserving um, success, and he's saying that this is incompatible with the white-defined class and culture. And of course, there's that super anti-Semitic introduction of Gatsby's partner, Wolfsheim. Nick described Wolfsheim as, quote-unquote, a small, flat-nosed Jew with a big head and hairy nostrils whose tiny eyes was revealed in quote-unquote half-darkness. So Nick saw Wolfsheim as this opposite of a decent, upright man, and given his gambling and fixing the World Series, Nick related his the darkness of his skin to shadiness and dishonesty. So in the larger context of the novel, by associating darkness and criminal business with um, ethnic otherness, Nick's anti-Semitism reflects a belief that you know, one devoid of whiteness must be devoid of virtue and earned status as well. And then as we start to view The Great Gatsby through this dichotomy between civilized whiteness and the primitive darkness, then we have a really interesting case of racial passing. There are a total of four black people in the entire book, and besides the three black people in New York City, the only other black person in the novel is a pale, well-dressed black person who was introduced at the car crash scene as an eyewitness. So this black person with lighter skin tone was not only presumably wealthy, but also the only black character who delivered a line. So Fitzgerald is relating the black person's having more whiteness in his skin to the performance of status and civility. And he's hinting that black people were only allowed to have a word with white people when they pass. And this acquisition of power and the weight of one's voice require assimilation into whiteness. And even outside the context of race, 
I mean, there are debates about whether Gatsby is black, but I don't think that's true because if he is, um, Tom, who is a white supremacist, would go nuts. But on the note of assimilating into whiteness, there's a quote in the book about Gatsby's brown, hardening body. So I'm guessing for a white person, he probably has darker skin as a result of labor and exposure to sunlight, which was an indication of peasantry. Um, which is true because Gatsby used to be a poor white guy, and that was unsuitable for white upper class. So throughout the novel, Gatsby is very insecure, and he repeatedly attempts to fit into the white standards. He lies about a European education. He competes with Tom, who is the prototype successful white man, for Daisy, who is the symbol of money and the、uh, prized white girlhood. However, Gatsby. Inevitably falls back into the dark world. He's bootlegging and working with criminals to earn money, etc. So, looking at the plot through the dichotomy of whiteness and darkness, Gatsby's rejection from Daisy and tragic death could also be seen as a failure to pass as a character on the merge of the dichotomy between white success and dark illegitimacy. So, that's a symbolic punishment for attempting to cross the line of social hierarchy. So, in *The Great Gatsby*, the construct of race. I think it exists beyond qualifiers like money and skin color as this predetermined, inescapable destiny of staying in one's place. So you're either celebrated and superior, or othered and inferior. And at last, I'd like to talk a little bit more about Nick's perspective because this is crucial to understanding Fitzgerald's、um, depiction of race in this book. So Nick is actually. He actually criticizes white supremacy because he views Tom, who is a white supremacist, as this big brute. But then he's also skeptical about minority success, and so he has a very ambiguous attitude on race. Nick, as a narrator, he shows a lot of recurring contempt for Tom's racist statements, but then he also possesses a skeptical awe towards socio-racial mobility,、um, and he withdrew to the comfort. Of the white world at the end of the novel, because he says that as a Westerner he was unadaptable to Eastern life, and he's not talking about the West Egg East Egg New Money Old Money dichotomy. He's talking about the broader American landscape. So what happens in the East? There are a lot of explosively scandalous events in New York City, which is the racially diverse East Side, and that includes Tom's assaulting Myrtle. The meeting with Wolfsheim and the fight at the Plaza Hotel in the sweltering heat, in which、uh, another detail is that Tom compared Gatsby's advance as a disruption of order, that is similar,、um, in his view, that is similar to interracial marriage. And so, born from a wealthy family in the Middle West, Nick is from the West. Nick eventually detached from the raciness of New York. He was. Wary of imagining a new bustling world where he has to sacrifice his privilege to face the rising accomplishments of people of color, or as he saw it, the rising chaos, and he ended the narration, you know, sighing the process of being born ceaselessly back to the past, which metaphorically is his own journey of experiencing racial construction in the East Side, and then going back to the white world. From a historical perspective, Nick painted. The dichotomy between the East and the West, as the mystical melting pot and the heroic white frontier, which is identified by Turner's frontier thesis、um, about the single white man hero exploring the nation. So both Turner and Fitzgerald's historical view came from the white perspective that 
with, with clear omissions of the people who created the culture that inhabited the place before it was found. So Nick's immersion in the nostalgia for the pure white world is proven by the novel's lack of people of color resulting from Nick and Fitzgerald's selective lens of storytelling. The Great Gatsby, and this, I cannot stress this enough, it coincides with the Harlem Renaissance heyday, and it depicts white characters enjoying jazz culture showering in New York City's diversity, but it only features four black people among which only one spoke, one line. And ultimately, Fitzgerald and Nick, they tell the story from this angle that shows a world of racial progress only to retreat to their familiar Americanness that is defined by whiteness. And what's really concerning to me is that people don't realize that. People don't see race in The Great Gatsby. We see this as the scripture of America's literary culture, but then it just still tells the story through whiteness and with racist undertones. So now this is a good segue into the next section of our discussion, which is about a clip from the movie Moxie that just came out this year. Who did the summer reading that I asked everyone to do? You are new. You are Lucy Hernandez. Welcome. Well, Lucy, since you did the summer reading, I'm going to ask you the first question that we apparently have to ask about every work of art now, no matter what it's about or what time period it was created. How are women portrayed? Well, I think the real question is, why are we still reading this book? It's written by some rich white guy, about some rich white guy. And I guess we're supposed to feel bad for him because he's obsessed with the only girl he can have. I mean, if the point is to learn about the American dream, we should be reading about immigrants or the working class or black mothers or at least someone who doesn't already have a mansion. Why aren't we reading Sandra Cineros? I thought it was a great book. Hey, I was talking. Yeah, I know, but The Great Gatsby is a classic. Just because other books are good doesn't mean that this is less good. I didn't say the book wasn't good. I just wish that we would okay, brought it. You're not listening to me. People have read and have loved The Great Gatsby forever. I mean, there must be something inside this book that makes it so that we read it each and every year at our own school. Spoken like a true Nick Carraway. Do you know who Nick Carraway is? He was played by Tobey Maguire in the movie. Let's recap, since the audio format is somewhat limiting. In this scene, the white man teacher asks about the summer reading, which is The Great Gatsby, and Lucy Hernandez, who's the new black girl in the class, says that it's time to honor narratives that are not about rich white guys, and gets interrupted by the white boy sitting behind her. Any thoughts? I personally love Moxie just as a whole movie. I think it's a really great movie. It's a really good feminist movie, so I 100% recommend that everyone watches it. But I think uh, the fact that there is a white male in the class defending the rich white guy in the book, you can see how both your gender and your race give you like opportunities that others don't. And so she's talking from her perspective and he's talking from a very privileged perspective. But I think it really correlates to the book when it's just, it's a rich white guy talking and talking about women and talking about society and talking about the American dream, which is really just the 
idealistic version. It's the white American dream. Yeah, it's the white American dream, and it's especially the white male American dream. Yeah, and there's also that detail where the white man teacher goes, oh, no matter what this piece is about, obviously the first question we need to ask is how women are portrayed. And he says that. He's kind of annoyed. He says that with skepticism. That disturbed me a little bit because, I mean, given how privileged he is. And the very reason why we examine these literary works through critical lenses is because there's so many things that are wrong with them. And to echo Lucy's point a bit, it's only so urgent to ask these questions because this is a perspective from a rich white guy. If we start to honor narratives and perspectives of underprivileged groups and those who didn't have a voice before, then we can start shifting our focus from examining what is wrong with certain portrayals to the actual humanity of the group that they are trying to represent. Mm-hmm. So here comes the million-dollar question. Should we still read The Great Gatsby? I personally think I no. think yes, but I don't think that... And we talked about this a little bit before. I don't think that we should read it and be like, oh, what's the meaning of the green light? What's the meaning of the East Egg and the West Egg? It should be more focused on these literary lenses like CRT or feminist theory or gender theory, it should not just be a reading of the Gatsby just to read the Gatsby. It should be you pick something and you focus on that and then you like sort of wring out all the lifeblood of what that theory brings to you from your reading. And I think we need to shift the focus of teaching the great Gatsby from Gatsby's failed American dream to the actual failing of the American dream about promising equality and promising social mobility. And like, real talk, dude, you have a mansion. (laughs) I don't see, what about your life that's not American dream? I don't see what you have to complain about. I mean, this whole storyline is about his personal mythos, about wanting to be a godlike person who has everything and the girl he wants, and then eventually self-sabotaging himself into dying. I just think if we are going to continue reading it, it should not be praised like it is. Because right now, so many teachers and like the people that are forcing students to read this book praise this book and really like the amount of people who don't find anything wrong with this book is crazy and they should be talked to more about it and just like read it again and just like I feel like people read it once and they're like okay I read the great Gatsby I'm good now like they don't really understand it or understand how hurtful of a book it really is like the ideas and things that are talked about in the book it makes its demeaning to so many people. And so I don't understand why that book is praised so much. So that's my biggest problem with it, is that if it's going to be taught to students, it shouldn't be like, this is a great American novel. Like, this is perfect. Like, it's good, like, writing. Like, listen to everything it says. Like, I think you should take it with a grain of salt and be like, yeah, well, this was an old book. It's old times. And I just don't understand why it's really talked to about, like, how it applies to, like, the 2020s because I feel like it really doesn't. I think that when this book is being taught it should be taught by the students and not the teachers. My teacher when I was um, learning this book like learning how to read it through my lens and having discussions with my classmates my teacher was really good at that. He would just sort of step back and let us have our own discussions because when we did that we talked about how Nick is queer coded and we talked about the gender issues and we talked about the race issues and we talked about 
environmental issues that are brought up in the book. But if it's being taught by old white men, especially old white American men, (laughs) then it closes off all these opportunities for learning because there's only one perspective that a teacher can have. And so it should be that, like, the teacher assigns the reading for the book and they step back and let the students have their own opinions on it. And have it be a free discussion. Yes. Because I feel like that's a big problem is teachers will be like, yeah, it's a free discussion, but then stop you as soon as you say something they don't like. Yeah. And I mean, this isn't boycotting The Great Gatsby. You can still read it. You can still like the metaphors. You can still find them on the shelves and it's still praised. It's just that I don't think we should devote such a big chunk of class time to a book that clearly do not speak to the actual American dream if we want to start from there. And no matter how hard we take this as a negative example and look into it with the critical lenses, we're still not hearing from the people that have been overlooked. Mm -hmm. I just think that we should spend less time responding to rich white guys' hurtful ideas and letting them air and just leave the spotlight to the people who really need it. I mean, in this clip too, just don't make the white guy the center of the attention again. Can Lucy finish her thought, please? Have a book written by an immigrant. Have a book written by a black woman. Have a book written by a woman in general. Like, I feel like those things are overlooked so much. And they're like, it's a classic American novel. There are other classic American novels. It doesn't have to be The Great Gatsby. That's also an issue, though. A lot of our classic American novels are written by old white men about old white men. And so it's like, how do we sort of overthrow what it means to be a classic? Because but currently, there are so many that aren't. That yeah, they just don't get taught. They just don't get taught, which means that they lose their sort of status. Mm-hmm. But I'm also just thankful that we're reading this book through the critical lenses, or else we'll just be analyzing the symbolism of the beautiful shirts. <laughs> mm-hmm. But there are so many schools, like my friends um, at a different school, they read The Great Gatsby and they didn't think of it in any lens like it was literally just like discussing what they saw like it wasn't analyzing the book for like the deeper meaning it was literally just the surface so if you're going to teach a book like the great gatsby you have to go deeper and not just look at the surface because otherwise it should not be taught that's actually a really nice segue into our last topic today which is about the recent dispute over teaching critical race theory in public schools to quote a new york times article in a culture war brawl that has spilled into the country's educational system, Republicans at the local, state, and national levels are trying to block curriculums that emphasize systemic racism. Many conservatives portray critical race theory and invocations of systemic racism as a gauntlet thrown down to accuse white Americans of being individually racist. Republicans accuse the left of trying to indoctrinate children with the belief that the United States is inherently wicked. As we are recording this episode, states like Arkansas, Florida, Idaho, and Iowa, which are states you can easily buy a Confederate flag, are banning the critical race theory, and half the states are taking measures to um, restrict the teaching of systemic racism in the classrooms. Wow. Oh, and they're also banning the 1619 Project, which I just find it to be so funny, really. Uh, this is very much ongoing and getting bigger and bigger. But uh, the whole point of teaching about systemic racism isn't to blame the individual. It's all about knowledge. It's in the name. It's called systemic racism. And we are trying to correct the systems. And that starts with education. It's just an alarming move, given how only 8% of seniors can identify slavery as the central cause of the Civil War. And there's definitely not enough class time devoted to teaching the history of people of color in the United States. And critical race theory doesn't make you 
find extra racism. It's it's not finding. You're not hunting for more racism. You're just identifying what's there. Like it's been found before by black people. You just don't see it because you're white. And it's very important that like, as a as a white person, it's very important that I learn. And I don't want to have like a whole white savior thing going on. I just have to understand so that I don't do something wrong. I think the big problem, again, is like these schools are f- spending more time fighting than teaching. Like it's not helping us get anywhere. It's putting us back. It's I just think it's such a problem that they're focusing on that more than actually teaching someone. Yeah, for sure. And I hate this idea that pretending racism isn't real is somewhat egalitarian and unifying. And let's face it, the young people of this country is becoming more and more liberal. And that's because the people who had fought for the education of systemic racism and abolishing racist policies, they are becoming our educators. They are creating the media that we see. And so there's this right-wing insecurity about the upcoming generation of voters, which is us, Gen Z, being left-leaning. And so because they can't really do anything on the progress, so they're just focusing on the maintenance. And they know exactly what cultural buttons they can push to generate the biggest outrage among conservatives who are very much still in power. So now we have the people ranting about cancel culture, canceling culture. Yeah, it's taking cancel culture to a new level. Instead of just canceling people for stupid things, they're trying to literally cancel culture, which I think is really dumb. (laughs) (laughs) They're taking different meaning. Yeah, take on a different meaning of cancel (laughs) culture. Cancel history. Yeah. It's all, it's like teaching history in a way to praise white people. Like Christopher Columbus. For the longest time, like, I didn't know, like, until I started doing my own research about history and everything, I didn't know he was a bad person. Like, I didn't know the things he had done because my history class had only taught me the good things. And even then, it wasn't good things. You it didn't was discover anything. a fake version. It's kind of sad, but I didn't know until this past November that the picnic that the, like, pilgrims had with the Native Americans never happened during Thanksgiving. Like, the, the whole thing that they teach us our entire lives is we celebrate Thanksgiving because the white people invited the native people to like have a feast with them. That didn't happen. The white people killed the native people on Thanksgiving. That's what happened. And then we celebrate that holiday as a day to be thankful. Yeah. By the way, Thanksgiving yeah. means nothing to me. I'm Chinese, so <laughs> it has no it has no But like I was so Thanksgiving shocked. Thanksgiving to me is literally just a day to get away with my yeah. family. Okay, to end on a brighter note I think our school's considering replacing The Great Gatsby hmm. with something else. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> After all these years, <laughs> finally. I think that's a good idea. All right. That's it for today for Common Furious. I am your host, Suki Zane. Thank you so, so much for our amazing guests, Riley and Kylie. Thank you. You two are the coolest. <laughs> Thank you. Tune in each month for original content and discussions about your favorite social justice topics. And as the saying goes, keep calm and rage on.